You'll join me in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 7 through 13 as we continue in our series through Jesus' seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. This morning, we are looking at the church in Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia of ancient. The title of our sermon is Philadelphia Patience, and our key words for our worshipers in training this morning are works open and patient. Now, in the book of Zechariah, there are really there are two great verses that I really love in chapter four. You're probably familiar with both of them. Uh, the first is Zechariah chapter four and verse six, and the second is verse ten. You don't need to turn there; I'll read them to you. But maybe make note of them and consider the full context of what's going on there. But in verse six, we read this: It says, "This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel." Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 10 it says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And so Zechariah chapter 4 is about the rebuilding of the temple, uh, which was going to take decades for them to be able to accomplish. It's going to take weeks, months, years of hard work, diligent labor, and day by day there was very little to show for whatever efforts they were putting in. And remember, this was not in the day of uh, power saws and uh, nail guns, uh, so things took time. And God wanted to remind the people that their labors would not be in vain. One day they would hold the plumb line, they would see that last brick going into the temple, all of it would come into place, and they would realize that all of their labor was worth it. All of the hard work, all of the difficult days that seemed small and insignificant, when it was all said and done, it would have been worth it. So, so don't despise the little things, the Lord was telling them. The weeks, the months, the years... It doesn't mean we will walk on clouds and climb every mountain. It means we can press on through all of the ordinary stuff in life every day, even though the day-to-day seems pretty small and pretty insignificant. There's a great book by a a man named uh, Richard Fletcher called The Barbarian Conversion from Paganism to Christianity. It's about the evangelization of Europe, and it took a better part of a millennium uh, for that to take place. The point Fletcher emphasized over and over is that the, the conversion, the Christianization of Europe was a very slow business. He argues that Christianity eventually won over the West because of three factors. First, the demonstration of power. Second, powerful preaching. But third, it was dogged persistence. And we learn from that example that if God's people are going to make a difference for Christ, we have to patiently persevere over the long haul, trusting the never-failing, always timely providence of God. Things may seem insignificant as you look at them each day or as you look at them over a week or even a year, but over the long haul, the big picture, God is doing something that matters. God is doing something that will last. Think of William Carey. We've talked of William Carey before, known as the father of modern missions. Carey was raised in the obscure, tiny, rural village 
in the middle of England, and he apprenticed in a local uh, cobbler shop where he was converted as a nominal Anglican, not cobbler like you eat. Cobbler is working on shoes. He was a nominal Anglican as he grew up and was converted under that. He was very enthusiastic under, uh, about the faith, and, and though having very little, mostly self-taught education, he very quickly borrowed a Greek grammar and taught himself New Testament Greek. And when his master died, Carey took up shoemaking in a, a nearby town where he met and married his wife, who soon gave birth to a daughter. But his life was hard. Their daughter died at the age of two. His pay was insufficient to support his family. Carey's family sunk into poverty and stayed there even after he took over the business. But later, Carey wrote this in his journal. He said, I can plod. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. All the while, he continued his language studies. He added Hebrew and Latin. He became a particular Baptist preacher. He also continued pursuing his lifelong interest in international affairs, considering especially the religious life of other cultures. And Carey was impressed with the early Moravian missionaries that were increasing, and he was increasingly dismayed and troubled with his, his fellow Protestants and their lack of missionary interest. In response, he penned a very famous essay called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. And he argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times. And he castigated fellow believers in his day for ignoring that. He wrote this, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinner who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. So in 1792, he organized a missionary society, and in its inaugural meeting, preaching a sermon with the call, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And within a year, William Carey, John Thomas, a former surgeon, and Carey's family, which now included three boys and another child on the way with his wife, they were all on a ship headed for the shores of India. Now, almost immediately, Carey realized how difficult things would be. John Thomas abandoned him rather quickly. Uh, William Carey had malaria off and on. A son of his died from dysentery. He had to move his family around a lot because of the lack of work and funds. His wife grew increasingly mentally unstable, eventually losing her mind altogether. And it was seven years before William Carey ever saw his first convert from his work. It was two months after that when he published his Bengali translation of the New Testament that he worked on for that entire seven years. Now with this and subsequent additions, Carey and a few colleagues eventually came on board. They laid the foundation for the study of modern Bengali, and over the next 28 years, they translated the Bible into India's major languages, Bengali, Oriya, Marathi, Hindi, Assamsi, Sanskrit, as well as 209 other languages and dialects. Carey worked hard for social reforms in India. He helped to abolish infanticide and widow burning and assisted suicide. He helped found a theological college in 1818 for Indians that today is still running and offers theological and liberal arts education to over 2,500 students at a time. 
By the time William Carey died, he had spent 41 years in India without a break. His mission could count some 700 converts in a nation of millions of people, but he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. So you see, when he was growing up as a cobbler in a small town in England, it may have looked small. But an even greater legacy beyond that exists in that the modern missionary movement was inspired. Missionaries like Adoniram Judson and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, among thousands of others, were inspired to do what they did because of what William Carey started. But in the beginning, a poor man in a cobbler shop in a small town in England was studying Greek on his own. Who would have imagined that God would have accomplished through him what he did. Do not despise the day of small things. And as we look at our, our letter this morning, Jesus' letter to this church in Philadelphia, we're brought to a small church that has its eyes set on doing great things for God. And Jesus doesn't despise them. He loves them and he commends them. And we've seen a pattern as we've looked at the letters all along that Jesus will commend a church and then he will have some form of correction for a church. Then he will have a promise for those who are faithful within the church. And there are only two, two churches of the seven where he deviates from that pattern a bit. And Philadelphia is one of them. So let's read the text together and then consider what the Spirit of God has for us this morning. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. If you want to use the blue ESV Bible, that's on page 1029. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now the city of Philadelphia was founded in 140 B.C., and it was called the Gateway to the East. The founder of the city was Attalus II, Philadelphus of Pergamum, of whom this city uh, derived its name from, of course. The idea of the city was that it was to be the central place of Hellenistic, or the Greek way of life for the rest of the world. And so the city was very prosperous, and partly from its strategic situation, but partly from the grapes that grew and flourished in their vicinity. They made some of the best wine. It was a center of worship for the god of Dionysus, 
who contained, it, it contained temple to, other, uh, to this god and to other gods as well. There was volcanic activity in the area, and it created a lot of hot springs in the ground. They also had earthquakes from time to time. Sounds a lot like California. So Philadelphia means brotherly love, and they suffered from an earthquake in 17 AD and received imperial assistance so that they could rebuild the city. So it was a beautiful city. It had a lot of resources. Now, evidently, the church in Philadelphia was very small. That seems clear from what we read in verse 8. But we will see that it, was not a, it wasn't just a small church. It was a church of a very good quality. The enemies of the church in Philadelphia differed from so many churches. If you remember, all the other churches we've looked at, they had enemies, but a lot of those enemies were within the church. Well, the church in Philadelphia, their enemies are from outside the church. And it's unique in this church. If you recognize, you probably saw as we were reading, unlike all the other ones, there is no rebuke for the church in Philadelphia. Jesus doesn't rebuke them in any way. There was no heresy. There was no, there was no fracturing of the body. And he was pleased with them. And yet, those outside the church were attacking them and causing suffering and persecution among the Christians. And according to John, recording this letter, that work of those Jews was satanic at its core. So we see a place that looking from the outside in looks very weak. But it turns out that they're very strong. So let's look more carefully at the text. Our first point this morning we find in verses 7 and 8. And that is that our small deeds matter to Jesus. Jesus begins by speaking of himself in verse 7. He calls himself the Holy One and the True One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Now, being holy and being true are both divine attributes. So Jesus is very clearly making a claim about his own divinity here. And that's important because the prophet Isaiah uses these words, holy uh, and true, to describe God nearly 20 different times in his prophecy. And I'm bringing up the prophet Isaiah because what Jesus says here is a direct quote from Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 22. That is a messianic prophecy. And so when he calls himself true, he's saying, in light of what Isaiah prophesies, I, Jesus, am the true Messiah of Israel. Now that's significant in this text because Jesus is dealing with the fact that the Jews were persecuting his people. The very people that were supposedly waiting around for the Messiah are persecuting the people who have believed in the Messiah. But not only is Jesus holy and true, not only is Jesus truly God and the awaited Messiah, but Jesus alone holds the key of David. Again, Isaiah 22 and verse 22, it says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So you see Jesus is quoting Isaiah. So what that means is Jesus not only holds power over death in the grave, as is mentioned in Revelation 1, but now we see that in Him alone is found true salvation from the guilt and power of sin, since He, the resurrected Messiah, 
alone holds the keys. He is judge over all the earth. So while on a simple reading you might see it, you might not see it, but what you come to realize is Jesus is sort of piling on the descriptions of who he is and why that is important. The church in Philadelphia would have understood that, and it's deeply encouraging to them that this Lord, this God, who is who is holy and who is true and who is the awaited Messiah, who is divine in every way, that he is identifying with them and encouraging them. Now, in verse 8, Jesus, the Lord of his church and ever-present with his people, reminds them that he knows their situation. He knows how they have struggled. Jesus communicates to this little church. He says, I know your works. Despite their weaknesses, Despite their smallness, they had little strength, they had little power, they were struggling. There doesn't appear that there was any great, significant, flashy gifts among them. It wasn't a big, huge church with a flashy service, but they're not denying God's name. They appear to be faithful to the Word. So Jesus says, I know your works. I know you've taken up opportunities before you for my namesake. He knows their work. He takes note of what they're doing and how they're doing it, and it matters to them. They've been faithful under very difficult circumstances, and that means something to the Lord. Think again of of William Carey. He could have walked away. Look, he lost his child. Everyone was getting sick. His wife was losing her mind. Nobody would have blamed him for going back home facing those difficulties on the mission field. In fact, wisdom would probably dictate at some point it would have been wise for him to go back home, if even only for a time, but he persevered. And as he persevered, like the church in Philadelphia, the Lord took notice and the Lord blessed him in time. Look at what he says in, the, in verse 8 to the church. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, in the New Testament, this imagery of an open door almost always means an opportunity for success in the gospel. Paul uses this language in First and Second Corinthians, also in Colossians. We hear that language used often among evangelicals today, sometimes appropriately, not always. But the context is important here. The Jews were essentially claiming that they had closed the door on the Messianic kingdom to those who had come to believe and embrace Jesus as the Messiah. And we see that in what they were doing in this passage. But Jesus is refuting the name. This door that he has opened, no one else can shut. It's a complete rejection of the Jewish idea of what was going on with the Christians. To the Jews, those who had left Judaism and embraced Christianity, they were apostate. They left the truth. But Jesus identifies that the door is not only an entrance into the, entrance into the house of David in verse 7, which is the Messianic kingdom, but later in verse 12, he tells us that this is an entrance door into the city of the temple of God. And how did that door get opened? It got opened through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and nobody can shut it. Not Satan, not the beast, not those Jews in Philadelphia who, uh, who persecuted the, the church of Christ. 
And as the city of Philadelphia was an open door to trade both east and west, so too the church in Philadelphia will be an open door to Christ's messianic kingdom. That's an amazing promise. Very little strength, very little power, very few resources. Nevertheless, they're faithful with what they have, and the Lord promises to use them in a very big way. Isn't that a great encouragement? That's exactly what he did with William Carey. That's exactly what the Lord has done with countless gospel missionary works. It's what the Lord continually does with small churches and ministries around the world even today. Brothers and sisters, it's easy for us here to look at our own circumstances and say, yeah, we think we're a faithful church, we're a healthy church, but we're small. We don't have a lot of resources If we just had a lot of money, or if we just had better technology, if we just had a better preacher, Lord knows we need that. If we had a better location, if we had better branding, we'd get more things done. We would be a better church. But what matters here to the Lord? That's the question. What matters to the Lord is the gospel faithfully preached, the Word of God faithfully applied, the people of God faithfully obedient, the works of God's people, despite whatever the world is doing and how they're doing it, in the face of fierce opposition sometimes, producing the good works that have been prepared beforehand for the people of God to the glory of God. That's what matters to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord, the one who has the key of the house of David, throws open the doors to the messianic kingdom. The church is then a dynamic force that God uses to bring many souls to glory. We all want that, don't we? You see, so often the things that we can think of in our own wisdom, the things we think will be great in our own wisdom to accomplish what we desire, are the very things that the Lord looks at and says, no, not that. Not that way. That's not what I want. That was the problem we saw last week with the church in Sardis. Remember that? They were big. They were flashy. They had a lot of resources. Remember all the other churches looked at them? They had a great reputation. But really, in the end, what did he say about that church? They were weak. It was a weak church with only a few who were faithful. But see, now here we have this small church, this insignificant church, a church that nobody really even knows about, a church that everyone drives by and they kind of see it real quick as they're going and they say, oh, bless their hearts. Why don't they come to my church? They'd have more opportunities because we have more. But Jesus looks at them and he says, I know your works. He's saying, I love your works. Isn't that encouraging? Whatever our ministry endeavors might be, however small they may seem, however minimal our efforts are when compared to others, the Lord is there to encourage us and to say, I see you, I've got you. Stay faithful and I will see what you're doing and I will bless what you're doing and I will open the door to your labors and you will see great results. And so now they have these wonderful opportunities to witness, to labor, to to work, to uphold Jesus' name, and they were doing just that. And what does that look like? It looks like men and women who were starving went through the door and they came back 
to other starving men and women to show them how to get the bread of life. That's what faithfulness looks like. Look, when it's all said and done and one day the history of Redeemer Baptist Church is written, if it ever is, the reason the Lord will be pleased and the people of God will be blessed to read it probably won't be because eventually we have a thousand members or a million dollar budget or the biggest youth group in southeast Georgia. Faithfulness looks like us plodding along day by day in the normal mundane things of life with our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, teaching our children the scriptures, pointing our friends and neighbors to the cross. These are the things the Lord loves. Loving sinners through deeds of mercy, words of gospel proclamation, using our resources, however meager they may be, to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, raising up new leaders and sending them out, planting new churches, sending out missionaries into the world. And who knows? Who knows what the Lord will do? Maybe that means one day the Lord blesses those efforts to the extent that we could be the center of gospel revival. But most likely, given the history of things, that's not what we're looking for. That's not the typical way forward for the church. The Lord will see our works, and so the question we'll have to, we have to ask is, will He be pleased? Forget what the world says. Will the Lord be pleased? Will there be people in heaven who say, the Lord really used that church and those people to keep me faithful, to keep me walking toward Christ, to keep me persevering in the faith through the open door that I could be here today? Is that what people will say? I pray so. It is deeply encouraging to think about that. And that's a work of the Lord. And we, we can have that assurance if we remain faithful to God's Word because of what we see in our second point this morning, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is 100% irrevocably for us. There's a historical story of a discussion that took place between six Christian men in the city of Carthage. They'd been brought up on charges that they were Christians. It was a crime. So they stood before the proconsul whose name was uh, Saturninus. And Saturninus said to them, Swear now by the Lord our emperor. The emperor was the Lord. And the spokesman for the man responds, We have committed no wrong. We have committed no theft. When we buy something, we pay the tax on it. We do all of this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with the eyes, who is the King of kings and the emperor of all nations. Well, you can imagine that doesn't sit well. So the response is, have a delay of 30 days and rethink this. But without hesitation, the men say, no, we are Christians. And so Saturninus says, since you have obstinately persisted, it is determined that you will be put to the sword. And their response was, thanks be to God. Look at what they did. When being called to the carpet... They all knew that what they, how they responded would lead to torture and destruction. What did they do? They quoted the book of Revelation. 
We are not going to bow the knee to the emperor because our God, our Lord, a God, a Lord who no one can see with the eyes, is the King of kings and is the Lord of lords. Jesus gave to the people the truth. And once it was in their heart, he made them a people of endurance. And in verse 10, Jesus commends this particular church and says they have kept his word of endurance, just like these men, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. You didn't give up. You didn't deny my name, no matter what happened. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that Jesus himself endured the cross. It's the same language. He faced pain. He faced suffering. He faced trouble, and he endured. You know what that means? Now look at yourself. Look at the troubles that you have. Look at the things you're worried about. Look at the pain in your own life. How do you deal with it? Do you crumble or do you endure? Are we people of endurance? Are we people of durability? Historically, the church has proven over and over and over again that Jesus makes us able to stand. The Romans were amazed to see how Christians were able to get up in front of governor after governor after governor and say, we will not bow our knee because our Lord is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They would say, well, you'll be put to death. And the Christians responded, thanks be to God. The Romans looked at that and and they couldn't believe what they saw, the calmness the lack of bitterness in the Christians. This is all very practical stuff, isn't it? There were these Jews, we've already mentioned them, and Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. They were persecuting the church. They were attacking them in every way. And the Lord, the Lord is saying, I know it's hard, but keep pressing on. I will take care of them. Don't worry about them. You remain faithful. And then he says something amazing. He says, they will be bowing down before your feet. You see, Jesus could endure in light of the cross, in light of torture. And as as Jesus' people see this and understand this and embrace this, we have the same ability. Isn't it interesting in the Gospels how Jesus turns to one of the disciples and he happens to turn to the most wishy-washy, the most hyper, the most fanatic, the most frantic, the most anxious of all the disciples, Simon, and he says, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter, which means the rock. You ever wonder why he did that? You ever wonder why he chose Peter when he did that? Because Jesus was showing all of us that when we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, Our timid, anxious, sometimes sheepish or fearful ways can be transformed and we can become lions for Christ, unafraid, unashamed, unwilling to cower in the face of trials and suffering. Look at Peter's life. Look at him before Christ's death and resurrection and look at him after, completely different. Jesus is telling the church, I can stand in light of the cross and you too can endure. I will make you to be people who stand. And so brothers and sisters, whatever we're facing this week, it's probably not what the church in Philadelphia was facing. 
It's probably not having our toes cut off. It's probably not being impaled and lit as a torch to line the streets. It's probably not having your head cut off. And so if Jesus was so for them that they were able to endure all of that, you can be sure that Jesus is 100% irrevocably for us in such a way that we can endure whatever we face this week. And it's all tied up in verses 9 through 11. There's three quick promises I see right here. The first is this. In verse 9, we see that the enemies of the church will not ultimately triumph. The opposition is demonic. He calls them, again, a synagogue of Satan, and he tells the church, I will make them bow down to you. It's, this is similar to the same passage uh, that we just referenced about Peter. When Jesus says of the faithful church, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. The church will always triumph. Are you a part of the church of Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about being a church member. I'm I'm talking about being in Christ. That's being in the church. If so, then you will triumph. If not, you have no hope. If you're not in Christ, turn to Christ. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you will have everlasting life. Trust in Christ's perfect life that He lived to fulfill the law. Trust in Christ's death that he died in the place of sinners, that when we put our faith in him, all of the penalty that is due for our sin is found on the cross. And all of the righteousness that is Christ is found in us. That we can stand upon it and declare that we are in him. We can trust in Christ's resurrection, which is the promise that we have here. The promise that we will be raised from the dead to reign and rule with Christ forever and ever. Will you triumph with Christ and all of His people? Secondly, we see in verse 10 that God's persevering power will never fail. Notice those four precious words, I will keep you. You know what? We, we all probably have some difficulties we're going to face over the next week. In fact, some of us may have the most difficult trials that we're ever going to live over the next week. But this is Jesus' word to you if you are in Him. I will keep you. That's worth getting out of bed for, isn't it? Remember in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of us, on behalf of all of his people. And he says in his prayer, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Protect them. And so Jesus will keep us. He's telling them, I have the power to keep you in the midst of your trial. Not take you out of it, but keep you. That's a great promise. And thirdly, in verse 11, he gives us this promise that the duration of the trial will be relatively brief. He says, I am coming soon. What does this mean? Well, no doubt there's a lot of discussion and disagreement about what this means, but I think it means that the next great moment in redemptive history, it will be the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will come to judge the living and the dead. That's what 1 Timothy 4, 1 says. We say that in the Apostles' Creed when we recite it. Listen, this life is difficult. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. If you think it's not, then you're lying to yourself. 
The world is broken. The world is corrupt. The world is fading away with all that is in it. But Jesus Christ is coming again and he will make all things new and with him we will dwell forever and ever. So hang on just a little while longer, beloved. The Lord will not delay forever. And yet the scriptures tell us the Lord is patient. Again, for all who are not in Christ, this is the day of salvation. He does not desire that you should perish without Him. Will you come to that great day of Christ's return with fear and trembling because you've denied your Creator? Or will you arrive with great joy that you are glorified with Christ and you now have the full inheritance of your heavenly blessing? May it be that all of us would trust in Christ and walk by faith in His promises. And so to conclude in verses 12 and 13, our final point, the destination is worth the sometimes difficult journey. As we started this morning, I mentioned that in A.D. 17, Philadelphia suffered a catastrophic earthquake and many shocks came afterwards, and then some smaller earthquakes after that, with the result that the image of stability here for the overcomer is very telling. Jesus says to them, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. And so the the image is this unshakable, unbreakable pillar. Isn't that great? A pillar, something rock-solid, Do you know how you can do that? Just work that logic out today and this week. I read an account by a POW, a prisoner of war that was held by uh, the Japanese in a camp in Singapore. In 1945, the prisoners heard over the wire while they were being held that the Japanese were on the run. They were about to surrender. And so this this man who was a POW said, it was funny because for the next two weeks after we heard that, we were still in the prisoner camp, we were still being beaten, we were still under confinement, we were still being starved out, but our lives were still in danger, and yet we knew that we were going to be released. Up until that time, we we had refused to let ourselves either laugh or cry. It was too painful to laugh or cry. But once hope came in, once we knew there was hope, in spite of our suffering, we started to laugh and cry. Do you know what it means to be a pillar? It means to know, I don't know why I'm suffering today. I don't understand the meaning of it. I don't understand the meaning of suffering in general, but I know that the suffering will one day be over. I know because someone came down from heaven and took it on himself on my behalf. All of my sin fell into his heart, and as a result, there will be an end to everything that I'm experiencing right now. And so you can laugh. You can cry. You can be a pillar. Because Jesus is for you. Jesus is with you. And he will keep you if you are his forever and ever. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the power of your word in the lives of your people. And we do pray this morning, O God, 
that you help us as we look at our own lives, as we look at our families, as we look at our church, as we look at what we have, what you have given to us, how you have blessed us, that we never despise the day of small things, but that we always rejoice in that you have given us all that we need to do the one thing you call us to do, and that is to be faithful. And so we pray, O God, that you help us to plod along day by day in faithfulness. No matter what we face, no matter the challenges and trials before us, no matter the suffering we might be called to endure, that we would be a faithful people. We do pray, O God, that you would work your word into our hearts today, that we would be reminded in all that we face that you are for us, that you are with us, and that you will keep us. I pray, O God, for any who is not in Christ today, that they would embrace the truth of your word, that you would make them new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might walk joyfully and faithfully with you forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.